Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Anne Friedman. Today is the first of a two part discussion about Joe Biden and all the many complicated feelings we have about his positions toward women, power, abuse. A lot of Joe Biden thoughts is what's happening today and the next episode. The new levels of relevance of this intro hit me every time we say it. I know I've said this before, but like, I think as like everybody's shelter in place gets extended and extended, I am just feeling like long distance forever, baby, is like how I'm feeling. I don't know. In ways both good and bad. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Should we get right into it this week? Like, I don't know. We have a lot to talk about. I have no small talk to make, so (laughs) let's please get into it. I mean, the theme of this podcast pretty much is small talk, but (laughs) like (laughs) the foundational core (laughs) is small talk. Also, you know how I love small talk, so it's really, you know, I must be in like a tough place if I don't want to do it. You know, I think that you and I are outliers in the loving small talk department. Like it is, it is a beautiful, wonderful thing when someone does it right. I think bad small talk is horrible, but good small talk is a thing of joy and beauty (laughs) where you both walk away and go good talk good talk yeah where you both walk (laughs) away and you're like that was fun and low stakes like that's what i'm talking about (laughs) (laughs) oh and friedman fun and low stakes thank you for capturing everything i need right now I love that we have now done small talk and small talk is concluding. We had meta (laughs) small talk about meta small talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, The podcast is about Joe Biden this week. Who's Joe Biden? Oh, great question. I love that you're asking me that question. I'm the stand in for the audience here. Stop. Um, (laughs) It's because I love your brain. And I think everyone knows that Joe Biden is the, the front runner for the Democratic nomination for the election that we're allegedly having in November. The stand-in has become um, the teacher. Listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> he was the vice president of the United States for Barack Obama. He hails from the great state of Delaware. Mm and was a senator during the Anita Hill hearings. So there you go. Right. Was a senator for a very long time. And specifically, 29 years ago, I guess it was, wow, what is time, when Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings were happening, he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So a very powerful position presiding over those confirmation hearings and a person who had a lot of power to control how Anita Hill's testimony was heard. And, you know, not, not someone who said everything, you know, or like was, was the only person to blame for how she was characterized and how she was treated during those hearings, but, you know, a very powerful actor during um, a particularly painful and infuriating chapter in U.S. political history for women, I would say. That's a really good way of putting it. And I also think that that incident specifically, it's so important to look at when you look at 
whenever we talk about all of the ways that women are treated in public when they disclose stories of their abuse, of, of their harassment, that case, I think, was it's so instrumental in shaping so much of my thinking on this. And I also think that generally it's, it, is, it was so instrumental in like capturing in a big way the divide that that exists like when we when we say the words like believe women right you know and it's like what does that mean um who who gets to like bring forth an allegation when do they do it and what is the responsibility of people who hear this allegation right and there are some really specific ways that if you are a person in power you are responsible for making sure that certain voices are heard and not quashed. And I think like in the case of the Anita Hill hearings, um, as the chairman, it was Biden's role to decide which witnesses would and wouldn't be heard. And for example, there were several corroborating witnesses, other women who had similar experiences with harassment at the hands of Clarence Thomas, who could have supported Anita Hill's story, much in the way that now when we... Um, for lack of a better phrase, publicly evaluate the stories of women, we kind of look to other women for patterns, right? Like I'm thinking about the cover of New York Magazine with all of the women who had been assaulted by Bill Cosby coming forward with their stories together. And so essentially Biden was in a position where he could deny that to Anita Hill, right? Like, you know, there were other women who had similar stories who could have really shown that she was not an outlier or someone with like an ax to grind. And he chose to not let that be part of the hearings. And so I think that like, right. it's, it's super, super relevant to like everything we're about to talk about that came later. Right. And so to be precise, so like one grievance that you and I have, <laughs> uh, Joseph Robinette Biden, uh, is he a junior? He's, he's a junior. junior. I think he's um, a junior. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Wow, Robinette is a new one for me. <laughs> I always remember Robinette because I have a charming love of middle names. But <laughs> one point of the case is that Joe Biden could have done so much more to shield Anita Hill from Republican attacks because he was the head of the Judiciary Committee, which means that he had the power really to structure the hearings in a way that could have been fair. So he, like, for example allowed Justice Thomas to, to testify before Anita Hill. Joe Biden also didn't call on three women who wanted to testify about their own experiences about like office culture when they had worked around Justice Thomas. So um, this is relevant because Anita Hill in her testimony, which like I can't get over how powerful it is. Anita Hill, like in her hearing, described a very, very, very clear pattern of harassment. I just have to pause you and say on. it was technically Clarence Thomas's hearing, but you're also right that practically speaking, it was Anita Hill's hearing. Like, yeah. Uh, you're right. No, yeah. you're right. So in, like, I'm going to call it the Anita Hill hearing. <laughs> um, but um, so in the hearing, you know, she's like, goes into excruciating detail. These are not like, nothing is, nothing is vague here. And so, you know, she goes into she goes into the detail. She talks about how he repeatedly asked her to go out, um, you know, like not as a coworker, but to like go out in a, in a social capacity. She said no over and over again and he wouldn't take no for an answer. He talked about sex in like very graphic details um, around her um, and, you know, and then also had a lot of conversations about like about himself and uh, 
I also believe that, like, for me, because I didn't grow up in America, this hearing, my understanding of this hearing is also how I know um, Long Dong Silver from from uh, American pop culture because makes, like, a very prominent cameo in this situation. And the other thing that you, like, I think, like, a thing that is so important to know about this hearing is that the visual, the visual of it is so jarring. Here is this black woman telling this, like, very just this like very gripping story in front of a 14 all white male judiciary panel it's just like the visual of it is like yes this is exactly how power manifests like are you kidding me it looks so nuts and then she gets grilled about everything that she says because none of those men believe that it is remotely like possible that anything that she's saying is true And obviously, and the way that they're asking questions, like, very much underscores that they just don't believe her, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, if you have not watched clips of it, and you're listening to this, it is something that is very instructive, and will feel like it really set a stage for a lot of things that were to come in terms of women power in American politics. It's really nuts. It was like one senator was literally like, well, you know, everyone talks about boobs in uh, at work. I believe that was Arlen Specter. <sighs> um, <laughs> another, you know. What was his middle uh, name? <laughs> I do not I'm looking know it up Arlen right Specter's now. middle name. Can't help you. And then this is literally how I know all these like ghoulish senators names is from Anita Hill hearing. Another senator, Orrin Hatch, basically said that she made it all up because her testimony was, like, too similar to The Exorcist. Like, true story. Hmm. It's just... <laughs> it. If you are someone who, like, understands how problematic it is, it's like, you're, you're all probably... Like, I want to scream just even talking about this. It's so... It's so nuts. But it's also true that, like, not a lot has changed, because if you fast-forward to our time... I would direct you to uh, Christine Blasey Ford's testimony in Congress and how all of that circus was treated. I feel like it's worth noting that what happened in the next few years of his career, like the stuff he does brag about, which P.S. he doesn't really like to brag about him overseeing the Clarence Thomas hearings as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. But he does love to talk about something he did three years later. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., (laughs) He authors the Violence Against Women Act, which is part of the crime bill of 1994 and something that actually like whole teams of people in different senators' offices and lots of women's rights nonprofits worked on. But you would be hard pressed to find a clip where Joseph Biden Jr. says anything other than the bill that I wrote, my bill. In one clip I watched, he even says Biden's shelters at some point, like as if he personally oversees a network of domestic violence shelters or something. So he is like very front and center about claiming his authorship of the Violence Against Women Act as part of his legacy. Funny plot point about yours truly is that my very first job was at a women's legal rights nonprofit what was then known as the now Legal Defense and Education Fund, where I was hired as an intern 
right before the 20th anniversary of VAWA. And so it was my job to put together like an oral history of it for funders. And so I like know a whole bunch about this like law just because it was like the baby's first real job involved a lot of interviews about it. And it's interesting because it does have this air of a little bit of atonement about Anita Hill because, you know, the election after those hearings saw, you know, not by today's standards a bunch, but definitely by the standards of then a bunch of women elected to Congress. And it was kind of clear that um, the tide was already turning against him a little bit in terms of his behavior at that point. So VAWA has this air of like, okay, like, look at me, look at all the good things I'm doing for you. That's how I've always felt. I think that that point is important because... The legislation that is in it is really like targeting all of the violence that happens to women. The disconnect between like for a lot of male politicians, like understanding that, yes, like I believe that they believe that women should be treated equally, should like live free of violence and should be just like thriving citizens. I don't believe that them having those beliefs mean that they understand uh, what women are contending with when alone, not as a class, like one woman alone stands up to say, here is my story. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. I'm not trying to rag on the Violence Against Women Act either, but it is definitely also this really specific approach that was looking at like courts and law enforcement, you know? And so if you are a critic of like the jail and prison system in the United States and you are kind of taking a holistic view, you probably have some criticisms of the way that the Violence Against Women Act really leans on things like training police officers and training judges, which is like, again, like better than having those people ignorant of what's going on. But I just I bring it up because it's like part of the crime bill. And you're right. Like there, it has very much this tone of we must protect women. And, and like that kind of tone was pervasive, I think, at that time in the like tough on crime Democrat sense of like, we must protect our daughters as opposed to we must fully respect and listen to what they have to say, even when our own power is threatened, which is like exactly what you're <laughs> saying about the individual stories versus this like faceless mass that men are graciously agreeing to help or something. And I think that like, for me, this is a real through line with the way that Joe Biden talks about women, this sense of look at all these things I'm really doing for you, like this protective (laughs) stance um, that I find almost infantilizing as opposed to a real respect for power and for difficult, complicated stories. Creep over, over, over. He's a creep, yeah. If you are someone who has listened to our podcast for a long time, you know that we we have been discussing on this show for a long time Joe Biden's history of just inappropriately touching women. I cannot wait till Black Lives Matter like actually learns about how awful Joe Biden is. Also, he's a grabby, grabby old man. Like, he's so gross. Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend. There a is for long a treasure trove, really, Friedman, of pictures available on the internet of Joe Biden hugging, kissing, touching women that look visibly uncomfortable. I would actually call it a and horror trove, but like totally. <laughs> <laughs> a horror trove. There is a horror trove. And 
it was always interesting to me that so many of us could see it and so many of us were made uncomfortable by it, but it was never a part of the conversation. I don't remember it being a part of the conversation when Barack Obama picked him to be his vice president. That seemed like, at the time, seemed like, oh yeah, this team is great. And then they had this whole like buddy cop, like routine thing going on, the two of them genuinely like they love each other the whole thing is cute but in that moment it's something that like it always left me feeling uneasy because like are we I'm like, are we all seeing what we're seeing here and I think the reason it, it made me feel uneasy it's because the people who were in power at the time were people who's like these are the people that we are rooting for to be in power and so to see how easy it is to notice that something is like maybe not right and it's so easy to like sweep it under the rug and say like well no one's talking about it so it's uh it's not great and then you fast forward to like the moment now where joe biden is like running for president that was like front and center of the conversation like immediately you know it was like well the two liabilities of joe biden he's the inappropriate toucher and uh anita hill in a small way, I was like, well, you know, like progress can happen over eight years on these issues, but it is, it's just very disturbing still. Also, can we just take a moment for like, he's an inappropriate toucher, like the way, and I'm not even like singling you out, but I'm just, I, I'm just struck by the way that our, our dialogue about this evolves in response to how like media articles are written about it, right? Like inappropriate touching is such like a better headline than like, kissed a total stranger's head like like that is what he did to lucy flores he kissed a state assemblywoman's head someone he was like not <laughs> not friendly with like in an in an intimate way like literally just like someone he was standing on a stage with you know and and it's right. there's something about these broad terms that really um elides like the creepy demeaning like threatening way that they are usually received it's like inappropriate is this like catch-all that is frankly kind of useless when we think about the actual experience of standing on a stage having the back of your head kissed and being like what the hell do i do now what was that you know right or having someone just like like grab you from behind and you know like you're doing that or being at an official event and someone you know someone puts their hand on you in a way that makes you <laughs> uncomfortable again. And there are hundreds of cameras just going. I think, you know, like your point about the language is so good because I know that even for me, it it's uncomfortable because you are trying to, are, you are trying to articulate a thing that you can see is wrong and you know is wrong, but the vocabulary for it is lacking because as a society, we have a really hard time explaining what is going on, you know? Right. Right. And it's also, you know, it's hard because people immediately think that you're trying to like throw a man in jail if you say like, maybe we should examine what's behind this behavior, right? And so like, there's a lot of dancing around to, to say like, the word inappropriate signals okay, it's bad and we don't like it, but also no legal charges have been filed. You know, like it walks this line <laughs> where, you know, it almost like... Citizens arrest, citizens arrest. Fully, <laughs> fully, fully. So I don't know. I mean, like the that, that stuff, um, you know, the fact that you can Google all of these photos and the fact that as, as recently as last year, Lucy Flores was talking about this experience and um, the candidates running against Biden were acknowledging it at least. Um, and Biden himself acknowledged it. Oh my God. Do you remember his statement about the quote, 
inappropriate behavior that he gave last year. Can I please read it to you? Please tell me because I'm going to cry. I'm going to read an excerpt from the statement. Okay, this is this is Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. in 2019. Quote, I have always tried to make a human connection. That's my responsibility, I think. I shake hands. I hug people. I grab men and women by the shoulders and say, you can do this. Whether they're women, men, young, old, it's the way I've always been. The way I've tried to show I care about them and I'm listening. So it's just who I am. I never thought of politics as cold and antiseptic. I've thought about connecting with people. As I said, shaking hands, hands on the shoulder, a hug of encouragement. And now it's all about taking selfies together. Like this is a direct quote from his statement about this. It's like, I mean, (laughs) go on. The quote is so telling because... Lucy Flores explicitly said that she was touched um, without her consent, that it made her feel um, it made her feel bad, it made her feel demeaned, it just all of these things. And the automatic response is, I'm a hugger, <laughs> which to me is I was like, if you cannot draw, if you are the person who says that you, uh, you know, you're the author of the Violence Against Women's Act, and it's like the greatest work of your life. And you cannot draw a direct line between someone telling you, hey, a thing that you did made me feel unsafe. If you can't draw that line to um, straight to why women feel so unsafe all of the time or understanding that that language echoes a lot of um, what women who are assaulted say, you know, it's like I'm not saying that like giving someone an unwanted hug is the same thing as assaulting someone. But the common denominator there is that you touch someone without asking them or you touch someone who told you they didn't want you to touch them. And you were not either either not reading the signs because you were not paying attention to the power differential or you were paying attention to it and you didn't care because you felt fine with it. And God, I really... Right, because I'm a hugger. Yes. Because I'm a hugger literally says, I am entitled to touching you. That's all that that says to me. Ding, ding, ding. I could not, I mean, ugh, I know I agree with you a lot, but I really could not agree with you more about this point. And it's it's so to the core of why we have to talk about the way he continually refers to the Violence Against Women Act when we talk about this other stuff that's going on. Because it's almost like he took it like some kind of prophylactic pill, right? Like, oh, I, I co-authored the Violence Against Women Act. There's no way a hug could ever be inappropriate from me. It's like, you don't get to exempt behavior in the future because you have done a positive thing writ large on this issue. And I, I it reminds me of like all the Me Too stories we've heard where, you know, people would say, and I'm like clapping in my apartment. <laughs> like you are. Thank you. All the stories You're like taking the words out of my mouth. Where, where women would be like, but this guy promoted me and I'm a woman or like, he's always been great to me or like he donates to whatever, whatever foundation that his shady lawyers asked him to donate to when they found out this allegation was coming out. Like I really feel that like it is, it is not dissimilar to kind of say like, that is the tactic that he's employing here. I mean, and case in point, Eric Schneiderman, Mm. who literally was like the, he was the one man that was always being honored at like women's events, Mm -hmm. turned out that he is someone who had been sexually assaulting people, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I'm both depressed and angry about it. You and I were in a room with Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. in 2016 (sighs) at the United States of Women's Summit. Um, And he 
he spoke um, and, of course, invoked his authorship of VAWA approximately 10 bajillion times. But what I remembered about that, and I went back and listened to this speech, what I remembered about that was the graphic descriptions of women's experiences during and after being assaulted, which I will not subject you to, but like involved like a lot of nudity, like in every anecdote he told at some point, the woman was naked and like shaking and afraid. And it was really, really upsetting. It was very triggering. Yeah. It was incredibly triggering. It was also just so telling. Joe Biden was like invited to speak at this conference because of his authorship of VAWA, because he's vice president. He was one of the few men who got time to speak at this conference and the two things that I remember from it was that one I was triggered by his speech I was not the only person in the room that felt that way and two and he spoke forever do you remember how he spoke forever oh I went and he's 47 minutes I believe to Obama's like 32 or 27 or something like that yeah Right. And and so for, for context for everyone, this was like a thing where like we all had the schedule for the day and it was just like speech after speech after speech. Like it's that thing. Joe Biden went early in the day and he spoke for so long that he threw off the schedule for the rest of the conference. And I, I remember like all day just being annoyed by that. It was like, this thing is never going to end. Like we're just trying to get to the end so we can hear Oprah and Michelle Obama speak. Um, <laughs> they really stacked the programming at the end. It's true. <laughs> I know. They really stacked the programming at the end. I was like, put, I was like, put the big hitters in the morning before Joe Biden. Like it seems really small and petty, but it was so emblematic of like, of course. I was like, of course you said the wrong thing. But more importantly, of course, you felt entitled to just like everyone's time, which is the thing that we were talking about. It was so textbook. Yeah, textbook bad behavior <sighs> in, at an event like this. And also, it's interesting because we were literally the audience, but we were not the audience for that speech. Like the audience for that speech was the men who he addressed on the Senate floor to get VAWA passed who were like, think of your daughter like traumatized and shaking, like not actual survivors or allies of survivors who were present in that room. And I think that that is also very telling of like, who was that speech calibrated for? Right. Um, oof, oof. Well, let's take a break. Well, okay, let's talk about the moment that we are in now. Do we have to? Um, <laughs> I mean, listen, all I have is time, babe. Um, unless something weird happens, Joe Biden will most likely be the Democratic nominee to run against Donald Trump. Fully presumptive. Presumptive is much yeah. like inappropriate is the media word. Presumptive. <laughs> right. Presumptive. Unless something weird happens and they're, you know, think weird things are happening. When he announced that he was running, so many people were running for president. And so it's interesting to see that it's shaken out this way because the early conversations about Joe Biden were either like, okay, he's the, um, he's someone who has been at this game for so long that he has probably the best name recognition of all of them. But also I think that there was a belief that like in the time since the Obama presidency and the current administration, that the culture had moved so far along that 
there was no way that Joe Biden with his Anita Hill problem and his air quotes inappropriate touching problem and, you know, just like being a fuddy-duddy, like that there was absolutely no way that, um, you know, he would get elected. Right. Like you can't put a pair of Ray-Bans on a turd and convince us all to vote for it. Like, no. Right. Fast forward to now and here we go. The thing that I like, I remember about when he, when he announced that he was running, there was so much chatter about what was going to happen about Anita Hill specifically. If you are not following Anita Hill's like current career, please Google her. Her resume is iconic. Um, And she is very much someone who is, even though she is not someone who speaks a lot, um, she is still someone who is a very relevant player in um, the conversations that we have about, about like the place of women in politics and in society. As all of this was brewing, the very first day of his presidential campaign, Biden people announced that he had called Anita Hill and quote, expressed his regret for what she endured, which like, okay, the apology 101 playbook says that you actually have to accept some culpability if the apology is going to be real. Like, I'm sorry you felt bad is not really an apology because it is not engaging with your role in what really happened. So it's not an apology at all. In fact, it's just saying like, isn't it sad that you feel sad? Um, Anyway, he did that. Also, there was like 20, there's a 28 year gap between when the, (laughs) when the hearing was and when he decided to run for president. And at no time in the middle had he like addressed it at all you know i will say this when you make a huge huge mistake of that level like sometimes it does take a long time to like get right about it and to like apologize and there is a part of me that if this apology had seemed like it was actually grappling with the issues at play and had seemed to actually take some responsibility for what she had gone through i might feel different about it actually even coming at the politically opportune moment um but the n- I guess here's why I feel differently about it. It's not I, I do agree with you that it takes a really long time to um, to apologize to someone. And I'm not discounting that. I think that like that is true and fair. The reason that this is a sticking point for me is because it's not the first time Joe Biden's run for president. Exactly. It's not the first time that he has been confronted with like, ooh, what are like all the problems I need to like button up before I run for office? Um, and in fact, when you are running for president, you like if you're thinking of running for president, you've probably been thinking about it for a really long time. And so it like I, I only bring up that point to illustrate this is that it he is the person that made he is the one that made it look look politically expedient. Of course. I don't believe that like there is a wrong moment to apologize to someone, but I was like the timing I'm like the timing is suspicious and the timing is only suspicious because he made it suspicious. Right. Okay, so that's one thing. Like the announcement of the campaign came with this non-apology and then we should talk about Tara Reid. I mean, also it should be said that um Anita Hill like really brings the fire when she talks when she talks about like how deeply unsatisfied she was with that phone call. Can you imagine like someone calls you like 28 years later to apologize to you and you were asked about it and you're like, actually, that was not satisfying at all. Oh, my God. Actually, I'm just going to read this quote because in it she comes for his like VAWA credentials as well. Here's what she says. The focus on an apology to me is one thing, but there needs to be an apology to the other witnesses and there needs to be an apology to the American public because we know how deeply disappointed Americans around the country were about what they saw and not just women. There are women and men now who have really just lost confidence in our government to respond to the problem of gender violence. (sighs) 
Anita Hill. The reason I'm, I'm like I'm harping on this incident specifically is because the apology shows that for as much as Joe Biden says that he is listening and he understands or he is trying to do the right thing, we are on completely different pages. Mm. You know, like saying like, okay, I apologize. It, it took a long time and it was really painful. But to fully say the wrong thing and then when the person that you're allegedly apologizing for says, hey, actually, that apology wasn't great. In her statement, she she literally gives him the roadmap for like, actually, here's how you make it better. I know. <laughs> and she's just for free. And, uh, for free. and to be fair, <laughs> and he's had a, an entire calendar year since that happened and he hasn't done it. So, <laughs> I, you know, I was like, what are we doing? Like, who is driving this car? This is not. I can tell I'm upset because all I want to do is go get a snack right now and put down this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're so right. Like, are you kidding? Ugh. She literally is doing the job that every political advisor who has worked with him on this issue should have just told him. She's like, no, actually, like, you're not paying me any money. Here's the thing that you're supposed to do. Still hasn't done. Yeah. 30 years of campaign advisors could not put it this succinctly. <sighs> <laughs> I'm only laughing so that I don't sigh. I mean, we can do both. I think we have to do both. So that's part one of everything we have to say about Joe Biden. Uh, next week, we'll be discussing Joe Biden in the context of today and the upcoming election. Right. And specifically the allegations against him by Tara Reid and some of the media conversation that is playing out around that. Um, until then, we'll see you on the internet. See you on the internet, boo-boo. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, we're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We have editorial support from Laura Bertacci. Producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.